Well, good morning, everybody. You know, I, uh, I can't believe, can you believe it's December already? Oh my goodness, it's like you turn around and here we are. But what a great and wonderful and awesome season of the year. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure in your homes, things are starting to, uh, you know, move uh, as it is in our home. Uh, yesterday, the women's ministry kicked off, uh, in a sense, our churches. Uh, Christmas season because they had their women's uh, brunch and and uh, tea and it was amazing. Uh, Debbie and her team did a fantastic job. Really fun to see that, but it kind of sort of marks the the kickoff, if you will. But uh, this uh, Christmas sermon series, the hope of Christmas, is uh, based on Isaiah nine six. And you know, when I was getting ready to kind of get uh, this sermon going, I googled because that's what you do when you're doing a sermon, right? You Google something. And so I googled Isaiah 9-6 and Christmas greeting cards and uh, like literally hundreds, thousands of images came up. And I mean, like for instance, here's a few I just brought. One is this, you know, really simple, just that beginning part for unto us a child is born. Uh, some of them are fancier. They have, you know, more of the verse in there. Uh, if you want, you can actually use your own family's picture in one and, and use the same verse. Uh, if you want it to look like a Christmas tree, you can do that too. So it's a very versatile verse. Uh, but my point is, I don't think this verse or this portion of scripture is going to be brand new to many of you. Uh, it's a verse of scripture that we see a lot, uh, if nothing else, on, uh, Christmas, on Christmas cards. But what I am hoping is that by the time this series is over, my prayer is that you'll never hear the words of Isaiah 9 quite the same. Uh, these, next, these next three weekends and then Christmas Eve, we're bringing this uh, Christmas series, The Hope of Christmas, uh, to you. And, and our, again, my hope is that you won't see these words or read these words quite the same again. Before I jump into it, I want to give a little bit of background so we have kind of a, some context to, to this uh, portion of Scripture. So the setting is Judah. And uh, you can see in the map, Judah is the southern kingdom, Israel to the north. Uh, and it is a dark time in, in Judah. Um, they've been almost destroyed by the nation of Syria and Israel that came together to, to destroy them. And so the people uh, in, the, in this setting are very, very discouraged. Into this, we enter Isaiah. He's a prophet uh, in Judah, and he's uh, a prophet during this very turbulent time. Now, we don't know a ton about Isaiah, but he does... He is on the scene some 700 plus years before Jesus' birth. And so he's speaking into that here in chapter 9. Chapter 8, right before this, uh, he is speaking about a coming invasion by the Assyrians. Uh, in fact, uh, he tells them that God is going to use Assyria to uh, punish Israel and Syria. And so chapter 8 ends with these words, they will look up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. So it is a dark time in Israel for God's people. But then we read this in beginning in chapter 9. It says, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. So he's prophesying. And you might 
Uh, remember that, you know, uh, the promised land was divided by the tribes. And so he's talking here specifically about the land by two, uh, that are a part of two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. And he says, these lands, you know, we, we got to visit uh, Israel for the first time in May. And as we were going around, the, the guide would point out areas and he'd say, that's Benjamin and that's, you know, Zebulun and that's Naphtali. Well, this is two uh, areas that are the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of Naphtali, and they happen to be right around the Sea of Galilee. And so he's prophesying, he's telling them, uh, you're going to be humbled by the Assyrians. And indeed, history proved that out. Uh, they were wiped out by the Assyrians when the Assyrians uh, came running through there. But then he goes on and he says, but uh, it, you will, it will also, this land will also be filled with glory. And we know from history also that this is the land where Jesus comes on the scene and performs uh, his, his, the beginning of his ministry, many of his miracles, uh, lots of his teaching take place here. So they're going to be humbled, but then glory is going to fill this, this same land. Uh, watch this video. It helps kind of set up where we're going. Let me tell you a story. In the beginning was the Word, who was with God and was God. And without Him, nothing would have been made. There would be only darkness. Before God breathed life into man and woman to care for all that was created. Before there were the beasts of the field to roam the earth. Before creatures of the sea and creatures of the air. Before there were markers in the sky to guide our way. Before the dry ground and fields of wheat. Before the heavens separated from the earth. Before all things were created. There was only darkness. But God spoke. Let there be light. And light was born, spilling into the darkness, bringing comfort where there's fear, hope where there's dismay, life where there's death. This light, this word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So that every heart can have its new beginning.
So here Isaiah is foretelling, right? He's foretelling and he's, he's using the language of prophets. In other words, he's speaking as if these events have already occurred because in his mind they have. Uh, God said it, so it is so. And he's talking about what is to come. And in verse two, we read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. I don't know if you've ever been in a dark room or outside when it's super dark, you know, you can't even see your hand in front of you. But imagine for a minute that this room was completely dark, completely black. You couldn't see anything. And then in the back corner, we have a closet and there's a light inside the closet and someone were to open that door. See, it's not like the dark rushes out of the room and engulfs the light. Instead, we would immediately notice the light because the light, that's what light does. It begins to move into the darkness. And so Isaiah here is saying things are dark, but light is coming. And then we read and we go on in verse three and it says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Okay, all of that, here's what I want you to hear from that, that Isaiah is, is uh, telling us. Two things uh, he's pointing to. One is he's pointing to the light that we celebrate this Christmas season. He's pointing to a light that is going to come uh, some 700 plus years from the time of him telling this. But then he uses this verbiage, day of Midian, uh, in other words, uh, alluding to Gideon's great victory that we read about in Judges. And then he says this, he uses this word, wording, every garment burned as fuel. And what that was a, a reference to is that's what they would do when a battle was over, when a war was won. And so he's pointing to a day that's yet to come when there will be no more battles, where the, there will be no more wars, where victory will be won. Uh, that is something that is coming. But here's the, here's the key piece is that Isaiah is saying that all of this, both of these lights that he's pointing to, depend on the coming of a person, a Messiah, the coming King. That word Messiah translated in the Greek is Christ. And that's, that's what he's pointing to. He's saying it, it's coming, but it's coming in a person. And so we read the, the verse that this series is based on, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so these next four sermons, this one, uh, the next three weekends, and then, and then uh, Christmas Eve, we are going to have our sermon series, The Hope of Christmas, based on these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And, you know, it's... It, Oftentimes when we look at these, we can look at these and just see them as like characteristics. Uh, but Isaiah, I think here, means these to be names, to be titles. And, and that resonates with me. Uh, in, in my culture, my Samoan culture, we understand titles and that they mean something. In fact, uh, so like for instance, my, my mom, her brother uh, was born, his name was Tusi. And so when I was little, my, my uncle, I knew as Uncle Tusi. But then his father died and his father was Almavai. In other words, he had this title. Uh, our, our culture is run by chiefs, Matais. 
And so he was the Matai. He, was the, he had the title Amovai. And when he passed away, it was decided that my uncle should be the next Amovai. And so he was, he was given the title Amovai. And so from then on, I knew him as Uncle Amovai. But then later, uh, there was a bigger title that the Amovai family would fall under uh, called Ilawa. And Ilawa passed away. And so it was decided that my uncle should be the next Ilawa. And so for the rest of his life, I knew him as Uncle Ilawa. So I understand titles. They're a big deal in Samoa. I mean, they, they, have, they have a thing called the Saufai and they become a title. In fact, I have a picture of my cousin. So this is my cousin Floyd Scanlon, but he is now Ainu'u. And so when I see him, sometimes I mess up and I call him Floyd, but I should call him Ainu'u because that's his new title. And so when you look at these names for uh, our Lord, they are more than just uh, a name. They are a title, uh, 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 something that we can call them. But here's the thing that's different, is these names, the title themselves, carry meaning with them. And so for the time remaining, I want to unpack this first title, this first name, Wonderful Counselor. And Wonderful Counselor, uh, I'm going to talk about it by suggesting to you that Jesus is not only a wonderful counselor, but he is our wonderful counselor. And not only that, but he is the wonderful counselor. So wonderful counselor, Pele Yoetz in Hebrew. Uh, wonderful Pele. Uh, when we hear that word wonderful, oftentimes we think, you know, oh, have a wonderful day. Or in this season, we might think more something like this. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year Okay, that's enough. I don't want to make Mark nervous and I'm going to steal his job, so. All right. I don't want you to think of that wonderful, okay? I mean, that's nice. Instead, I want you to think of wonderful like we read about in Judges 13, 18, where it says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In other words, beyond comprehension, incomprehensible. When you hear me talk about wonderful, I want you to hear incomprehensible. So when I say wonderful, I mean incomprehensible. Try that again. When I say wonderful, I mean... Yes. Now, sometimes uh, people will separate those two and they'll talk about uh, Jesus is wonderful and he's counselor. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, certainly this uh, reference that Isaiah gives us, he talks about a child is born, meaning uh, speaking to his uh, humanity. And then he says a son is given, speaking to his deity. So he's acknowledging here that, that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And if that's not wonderful, I don't know what is. So certainly that would, would fit. But here I think Isaiah purposefully pairs these two and we get wonderful counselor. Much as he does in Isaiah 28, it's speaking more of a child is a wonder of a counselor. All right. Then that second word counselor, uh, yoetz, uh, means to advise or to counsel or to devise. Uh, think of the wise King Solomon as yoetz. Uh, in, in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 2, we, we read these words, which is Christ 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in other words, uh, he, he is a counselor, a wonderful counselor, because he knows all. He is, he is uh, wise and able to advise and counsel. So let's jump in, and I want to begin by suggesting to you that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Now, when you think of what makes a, a counselor good or what makes a counselor great, uh, a good counselor is, is good with communication, with acceptance, with empathy, problem solving, rapport building, flexible, there's self-awareness, uh, multicultural competency, healing. Uh, they bring hope. Uh, they help people get healthy to bring wholeness. Uh, all those things are things we think of when we think of a good or a great counselor. Well, guess what? Jesus was great at all of those things. And there's lots of examples that I could pull from in scripture. I'm going to share, I'm going to use three specific uh, examples just to help us understand that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. The first one is a story we find in John 4. Jesus is and his disciples are heading from Judea to Galilee. And so they have to pass through a town or they have to pass through Samaria and and they stop in a town called Sychar. And it's around noontime and a woman comes out to draw water. And, she, and uh, when she comes out, uh, the disciples have headed into town to find food. And so it's just Jesus there. This woman comes to draw water around noontime and Jesus asks for a drink. And so this woman says, what are you doing, right? So let me give you a little bit of understanding in that in case you, you don't. Um, Samaritan, Samaritans and Jews do not get along. So they don't really talk together, especially a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman. They would not talk. But more than that, understand, you know, I want, to put, I want you to put yourself in those shoes of this woman. She, she's coming to draw water at noon, which is not the normal time you would draw water. Uh, at high noon when it's the heat of the day. But for whatever reason, she is. And my suspicion is that she's coming there hoping that nobody else is there and nobody's talking to her. She's hoping she can just kind of sneak in and sneak out. And then she's especially not thinking that this Jewish man is going to talk to her, but he does. He asks her for a drink and she's like, dude, what are you doing? You don't talk to me, right? And he says to her, well, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. And she looks at him and says, well, you don't even have anything to draw from. How are you going to give me this living water? And of course, Jesus responds and says, well, everyone that drinks of the water you're dishing up, they're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink the water that I'm giving, you will spring, it'll be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And at that point, the woman says, well, give me that water. Right? We all want that water. And then we read this in John 4, beginning in verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. See, a good counselor might have spent weeks trying to get all that information out of this woman. You know, laying her on the couch and, you know, talking to her, asking her questions. But Jesus didn't need weeks. He didn't, need, he didn't even need minutes because he knows. He's a wonderful counselor. And by wonderful, I mean incomprehensible. Here's another example taken from Luke 9 about a guy named Zach. Yes, just like the little children's song, Zacchaeus, he's a wee little man. But he's also a chief tax collector and he's rich. 
And one day Jesus is entering Jericho and Zacchaeus wants to see him. And so just like the song says, Zacchaeus climbs up in a sycamore tree so he can see the Savior as he's passing by. And then as Jesus is passing by, he looks up in the tree and what does he say? Zacchaeus, you come down, right? Because I'm going to your house today. One of the things that counselors hope to do is to affect some change, right? Well, here's what we read in Luke 19 after Zacchaeus and Jesus have this quick interaction. We read this, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So maybe you hear today and you relate to Zacchaeus. You're like, oh man, if God knew all the things in my life, uh, there's no way he would have anything to do with me. Well, he's a wonderful counselor. He knows all of those things already. Put yourself in the shoes of those people that he's defrauded. You know, they're probably mad. They, they, you know, who knows all the things that they're thinking. And all of a sudden you're standing there in earshot and you hear him say, this guy that's defrauded you, well, whoever I've defrauded, I'll give back four times. What's going through your mind at this point? He's a great and wonderful counselor. Or how about the story we find in John 8? Jesus comes to the temple early in the morning and all the people have come out to hear him teach. And that alone, by the way, is amazing. Pastor Jim and I teach a men's leadership class every other Thursday uh, and have a heck of a time getting the men to come out early in the morning just a couple times a month. And here Jesus shows up early in the morning and they all come out because it's Jesus. And this particular morning, the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring in this woman that's caught in the very act of adultery. Now don't ask me how in the world they caught her in the act of adultery, but they do. And they bring this woman and they, they say to Jesus, the law says we should stone such a woman, what do you say? Now they're not actually interested in justice, all they want to do is find ways to bring charges against Jesus, right? And so they bring this woman and, and ask Jesus, what do you say we do? And if you've read the story, you know Jesus bends down and he begins writing in the sand. And then he stands up and he says, I'll tell you what, whoever among you is without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he goes back and starts writing in the sand again. The Bible says that beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they simply dropped their stones and walked out. You know, one of the things that a great counselor is able to do is help people see themselves. Pharisees and scribes were not known for self-awareness. They were not known for being willing to admit their own faults. And yet here they are, beginning with the oldest, going through to the youngest. They were recognizing, look, it's a field day for them. It should be. Jesus just gave them permission. If you're without sin, which they would certainly have said that, then cast the first stone. They should have been just chucking stones at this woman. But instead, because Jesus is a wonderful counselor, they saw themselves for who they were and they dropped their stones and they, and they left. Another thing that counselors do is they counsel, they give advice. The last thing that Jesus says to this woman is from now on, sin no more, which is pretty good counsel because Jesus is a wonderful counselor. And by wonderful, I mean 
incomprehensible. But he's so much more because he's our wonderful counselor. We have access to this counselor. We have access to the same counselor that Zacchaeus, that the woman at the well, that this woman caught in adultery. We have, this, we have access to that same counselor. I can think of hundreds of examples in my own life where I've called upon this wonderful counselor. Every time I preach, I get on my knees and ask the Lord to help me. I think of the time we went through adoption several years ago and how much prayer went in around that, seeking God's counsel. But a couple that really stand out in my, in my journey, uh, one is back about uh, almost 20 years ago now, wow, time flies, we were living in Centralia and we'd been in Centralia for 17 years and we were asked to consider taking a role with Young Life up here in Tacoma. And uh, what you need to know is at that time, uh, we had been in Centralia for 17 years. Uh, my oldest was a junior in high school. And uh, I, I use the word often, we were comfortable. I mean, life was good. Um, my kids were all in a really healthy place, spiritually, uh, socially, uh, in school. Uh, things were good. Young life was, was thriving in, in, uh, down in Lewis County. And, and so into this comes this request, and we, we, we knew right away that we needed to pray about it. And so Kelly and I did. We began to pray about it. And then somewhere along the line, we decided it was far enough along in the process that we needed to bring our kids into it. So we sat our kids down and we told our kids, hey, here's what we've been asked. Here's what we're praying about. We want you guys to join us and, and pray for this as well. And, um, and so our, our kids did join us. You know, oftentimes when we, uh, when we are talking to people and counseling them, you know, to, to pray, uh, we'll have somebody say, well, okay, I'm fine. I'll pray. But how's God supposed to answer that question? right? Like this one. Like if, you know, you pray, God, do, are we supposed to go, not supposed to go? How does he answer that question? And, you know, my answer is always the same. Let God be God. You know, don't worry about that part. You, be wor you worry about the asking part. You worry about being willing, being open to listening. But God's a, he's a big boy. He can figure out a way to get the answer to you, right? And I can tell you, there were many, there were many ways that we heard from God this, this sense of we were supposed to go. But one in particular that really stands out is uh, my daughter, Krista, number two in our, in our family. Uh, she, she was a freshman. And the, probably the biggest thing you need to know about Krista is uh, she, born and raised in Centralia, she had this group of friends. They did everything together. So, I mean, literally this same group of girls played soccer and then basketball and then fast pitch and then got ready for soccer again. And so she was tight with these girls. And so the minute this came up as a prayer request, she was in tears. And the minute her friends heard about this, her friends were in tears. And so, you know, one day Krista comes to us and she says, mom and dad, I know we're moving to Tacoma. We're like, no, honey, that's why we're praying. We just, we're, we're praying to see if that's what God wants us to do. And she said, no, God told me we're going. And he told me he had to tell me first because I'd have the hardest time. So don't let God figure out how he'll get the answer to you, right? The other one that I can't help but think of immediately is when my grandson, Justice, uh, we got a call 
from my daughter, my oldest, and she was in the back of an ambulance uh, rushing to the hospital. Her son, Justice, our grandson, uh, four years old, had uh, lost consciousness, stopped breathing. They'd revived him, and they were rushing him to the hospital. And, he, and she told us, she said, as soon as we, I figure out, you know, they figure out what's going on, I'll, I'll call you. And they were living in Portland at the time, and, and my, my wife, Kelly, she looks at me, and she said, I, I think I should go. Now, she also gave me that look. Uh, those of you guys that have been married for any length of time, you know the look. She was basically saying, I'm going, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of come along board with this, but I'm going, which of course was the right answer, and, uh, and so she left. By the time I got there, things were spiraling out of control for justice. And I felt like I was in one of those movies, you know, where the ground is moving and you can't, like everywhere you step, it's, it's moving. And that's how I felt. Like I couldn't get any, any footing anywhere. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm looking over here and there's my grandson, four years old, hooked up to all these wires. And then next to him is my daughter, my oldest, who's doing everything she can to hold it together because of her son. Then next to her is her husband, Jason, my son-in-law, big behemoth Jason, who's doing everything he can to hold it together for his wife and for his son. And the next to me is my wife, who's not even pretending to hold it together because her grandson is hurting and her daughter is hurting. And there I am sitting there, I got nothing, nothing but Jesus, my wonderful counselor. And I can tell you, I've never prayed so hard, never read God's word so intently. Kelly and I prayed and we prayed and I know many of you prayed for us and for justice but my prayers weren't just for justice I did absolutely I prayed for justice and healing and all of those things but selfishly I was also praying for counsel God what do I do and I can tell you God answered our prayers not always the way that we wanted him to answer them but he answered our prayers and I can tell you, he especially answered those prayers for me for counsel because Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And by wonderful, I mean incomprehensible. He's ever present. He's always there, always available. But he's so much more because Jesus is the wonderful counselor. This period in Isaiah 9, things are dark for God's people. You might look around today and say, well, things are pretty dark today for God's people. And I don't know that we would necessarily disagree. I mean, after all, I just read this week about more shootings in Wisconsin. It's like, oh my goodness, again. You might think about the fact that we live in this post-Christian culture. I was just talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about how, I mean, statistically, we've been in a post-Christian culture for a while. But somehow, more recently, it is, we've felt it. You can feel 
that we're in a post-Christian culture. It's a little side note, by the way. Uh, don't get too alarmed at that. Christianity has been in, a, in, a, in this position much more in history than it has in the position we've been in uh, here in this country. God's able to handle a post-Christian America. But it, you look at things like crime. I mean, the prison population. Oh my goodness. In 1970, there were 196,000 prisoners. Today, or in 2010, 1.6 million. 700% increase. And then you look at things like war and deaths, even since 9-11. It's easy to look around and say, we're in a dark place. Things are dark. And so because of that, we're, we want solutions. We want to find a way to fix this. And I, you know, I, I admit, I get frustrated sometimes at the political dialogue that goes on. But even when I listen to people that disagree with me, I understand that they too are looking for a solution because they're in pain or they know someone that's in pain. And so they're looking for a solution. They're looking for hope, just like I am. That's why I love this quote by Chuck Colson. He said, the kingdom of God isn't arriving on Air Force One. We all want a solution, but it's not going to be this quick, easy solution that comes because we, you know, elect the right person. And I, hear me, I'm not saying just pull out, forget all that stuff. We have to be involved in a part of all of those solutions and figure out how do we best love God and love our neighbor? How do we best share the love of Christ with this world? Absolutely. We need to be a part of that. But just like when Isaiah the prophet was speaking to Israel in a very dark day, there are things that in our dark day that we're called to be about, which is why we need our wonderful counselor. But here Isaiah is speaking to something that's much bigger than, than just some good advice on whether or not I should move my family. He's speaking to something much bigger than just what should I do about the sin in my life. He's speaking about something much bigger than even some of the big conversations going on I've global warming or freedom of religion or the threat of war in the Middle East. See, Isaiah here is telling us about the wonderful counselor, the one that will set things aright, not make things just a little bit better, but someone that, the, the great counselor that's going to come and make things right. And when I say the wonderful counselor, understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying like, my opinion is, I've weighed them all out. I've looked at all the counselors. This guy, he's really good. Like he's, he's great. It's not an opinion, okay? I'm saying he is the great counselor. Uh, so here's an example from football, all right? I know, surprise, surprise. But, you know, in football, they always argue about who's the greatest. And, you know, right now, a lot of people would say that, that Tom Brady is the GOAT. If you're not familiar with that term, it's just an acronym, greatest of all time. He's the quarterback for the New England Patriots, and some believe he's the GOAT. What I'm saying is, I'm not, or what I'm not saying is that Jesus is the GOAT, like he's the greatest uh, counselor of all time. No, he's the counselor. Like, because we know one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So even if you're sitting here and you're saying, well, he can be your great counselor, but he's not my great counselor, it's okay. Because one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, because Jesus is the wonderful counselor. See, if the Bible is true, then one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because he is 
the wonderful counselor. And that's why this hope of Christmas, it isn't found in something that we're hoping for. Like there's lots of things we hope for, right? Some of you are hoping for a white Christmas. The other half of you are hoping we don't have a white Christmas. Some of you are hoping for something special under the tree. Some of you are hoping the Seahawks win the Super Bowl. There are things that we're hoping for, right? But rather it's found in someone. In other words, we aren't hoping for something. We have our hope in someone. As you can tell, our worship team is coming up because they're going to sing a song called Messiah. And then I'm going to come back up, up, back up afterwards and share some next steps. Isaiah, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, spoke of a long-awaited Messiah. That same Messiah is who our hope is in, the wonderful counselor. So next steps, there's just two. Number one is I will make Jesus my wonderful counselor. And then I want you to write down maybe a couple of ways that you'll commit to that. Uh, You know, there's lots of ways to make Jesus my Messiah, but the two that uh, are probably most pronounced is pray and read. Uh, Pray. Pastor Jim gave a 24-day challenge. There's, you know, take that, read God's word, uh, but make some commitments about that around those things that you're going to do. You see, Jesus can't be my counselor if I don't give him an opportunity to actually counsel. And then the second one is I will share the wonderful counselor with somebody. When you, uh, when you get good counsel uh, and then you find somebody or you, you have a friend that needs good counseling, we recommend that counselor, right? It happens all the time. Uh, lots of people that have come to see Kelly and I, when we talk to them, they say, you know, yeah, so-and-so said, you need to go talk to the Pritchards. So that's what we do with good counselors. So why wouldn't we do that with the wonderful counselor? Uh, That Samaritan woman that Jesus spoke to uh, at the well, later on in that same passage of scripture, beginning in verse 39, we read this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. She got great counsel. And so she went and told everybody, we should do the same. Will you share the wonderful counselor with someone? Invite them to the rest of this Christmas series. Next week, the choir singing and there's gonna, Heather Lawrence is gonna be taking pictures downstairs and it'll be a fun time. And invite your friends to come. If you can today, right after this service downstairs, we are, we are executing Operation Good Neighbor where we are going to go throughout our neighborhood around the church delivering cookies and invitations to the rest of our Christmas series. So there's a way to share the wonderful counselor with our neighbors. Uh, The giving tree, how about that? Out in the foyer, I heard there's like 15 cards left. There should be no cards left when we dismiss today. We need to get all those cards and another way that we can share the wonderful counselor with our community. And then prayer, 24 day prayer challenge Pastor Jim gave, 24 days of praying for someone who needs to know the wonderful counselor. In fact, if you weren't here last week, you might be wondering about our decorations up front. So these ornaments, every ornament in the glass containers represents somebody that someone in our body is praying for. 
somebody that needs to come and hear about the wonderful counselor. And so if you haven't done that, then I'd invite you to do that. You can come to the baskets and for every person that you're committing to pray for, uh, you would take an ornament and put it in one of the glass containers. There's one out in the, in the gathering area as well. But all ways that you can share the wonderful counselor with those in our community and those in your life. Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you and thank you that you are our wonderful counselor. But in this Christmas season, Lord, we are reminded that you are the wonderful counselor. You are the one and only. Uh, Lord, and we know that one day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord. And so God, I pray for everyone represented here that number one, we would uh, fully embrace that, that we would share you with those that we come in contact with, those that we do life with. Lord, I pray that it would feel uh, more real than ever this Christmas season. And then Lord, I pray for all of these these things that I just talked about, these different ways uh, that we have to share uh, Christ with our community. I pray, Lord, your, your blessing on all of those. And I pray your blessing on every family represented here, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.